0: Whoa. Are y'all ready for a l- another little bite out of the apple this morning? Uh, our bites are getting bigger, okay? Last week it was 11 chapters, today it's like almost 40. Next week it's the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we've got to pull up and just clip the treetops off. Um, we are looking at the Old Testament. We began last week with the, uh, the opening chapters, which are sometimes called the prehistory. And what stands out about these chapters to many is that they really relate the rest of the Bible, which is the story of the people of Israel, God's people, relates that to the larger world, the larger human race. Um, And as people have studied this, it really struck them that these five sections, you've got two creation stories, which on the surface are very different, and one, human beings are created first, one, human beings are created last, Uh, one, God is very majestic, awesome inspiring the other one God is very intimate just uh, almost like a down home East Texas boy and then uh, but behind that they teach the same things then we have the story of the origin of evil which is of course the story of uh, Cain and Abel the uh, opposite of the story of the apple and then flows out into the story of Cain and Abel and then heads up towards the flood we have the story. Jackson, we may be in, there we go. This flood story in Genesis. May have to work my way up today. Somebody (laughs) stole our clicker. Again. Okay. You see one of those things. The one that looks like a spaceship from science fiction. deal it's, It's running around somewhere. Flood story, five chapters, and the story of the Tower of Babel. As we looked at last week, what strikes people who study this, the interesting thing is that none of those stories are original to the Bible. They're all found in the Babylonian culture. And they're found in the cultures that precede the Babylonian culture, Assyrian, Old Babylonian, Akkadian, going back to the Sumerian 2,000 years earlier. So what stands out about these stories is not that the story itself is unique. What is unique is the way the biblical writers have taken the story and have changed it to proclaim the biblical faith. Um, and And that's what we looked at last week. Uh, today, we're going to move ahead and we're going to look at the story that really um, connects then moving toward the Exodus. It's the, uh, the narrative that's going to occupy, which is really the story of the nation of Israel, the chosen people, the people of God, uh, where it's going to be Genesis 12 through 50. And we're going to move off the focus of the human race as a whole. And interestingly, we're going to move to the focus of just one family. And we're going to, um, four specific generations of that family. Um, we're going to narrate how this story starts uh, in Babylon, which is the lower part of Mesopotamia, and then moves to Cana. You know, uh, Abraham's not called in, in Babylon. He's called in where? Remember? Haran, up north in Syria. It's Abraham's father that actually starts to start this journey. And finally, they're going to wind up in Egypt which is where the story is going to open with the Exodus story and the book of Exodus next week. Um, Thereby, what Genesis really does is it sets up and sets the stage for the story of the Old Testament, which, of course, is the Exodus story. So we're sort of moving toward that. We're going to set that up. Uh, Covers a period of roughly 300 years. Now we're in a time period here where it's really hard to date stuff, so... Some people will date Abraham about 2000 B.C. Some will say, no, it's more like 1900. I would not. That's not the ditch I want to die in. OK, it's just, you know, <laughs> somewhere back in there. Very, very early in the Bronze Age. Uh, they narrate the four generations. We're going to have Abraham and Sarah, who becomes Sarah. And you remember Hagar, right? In today's world, Hagar becomes important because of her son. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. Jacob and Esau, the brothers. And then we go with Jacob, and he has Rachel, and he has Leah. Um, the fourth story then would be Joseph and his brothers. He also has a wife who's mentioned in Genesis but does not play a real role. She plays a huge role later in later literature, Aseneth. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, a book called Joseph and Aseneth. It talks about how she converts from her faith in Egypt to the faith of Israel. Uh, traditionally, how many of you have heard the term? They, these are the patriarchs? Is that the language? Okay, so wrong. <laughs> okay, yeah. it is just so wrong. Uh, it implies that it is the men who are important. Now, that'll work until you read the Bible, <laughs> and then it all falls apart, okay? <laughs> Who's really important in those stories? Okay, yeah. Without Sarah, there is no Abraham, folks. And, you know, without, without Rebecca, Isaac is nothing. The women, particularly with Abraham and with Isaac, are at least as important to the men. I would argue, and many would argue, probably they're more important to the narrative. Uh, they are the ones who drive the story. Uh, Sarah is the one who decides on her own without consulting Abraham. Remember her big decision, what she did? Yeah, here's Hagar. Take her and have a child. Kay. And that sets some stuff in motion. You've got Rebecca, who is sort of uh, forming an alliance with her son Jacob, against the father, Isaac, and against the other son, Esau. And you thought your family was dysfunctional, okay? (laughs) Uh, That's a delightful story to kind of read, but those two in particular. Now, unlike last week, and unlike Genesis 1 through 11, there are no archaeological smoking guns, okay? We do not find in the Babylonian tradition or the Assyrian or the Akkadian or the Sumerian Stories of Abraham or stories of Isaac or stories of Jacob. So it appears there are no other earlier stories that we're drawing on here. Uh, They appear to be unique to the tradition of Israel. However, there is a huge historical thing that is actually going on, not archaeologically, but there's something that historians notice as they begin to read these these narratives and something that will help us today that we're going to kind of focus on. Uh, historians can give us some insights as to why Genesis 12 through 50 is written the way it's written. Because when historians read this, uh, you ever heard the term anachronism? Okay. Genesis 12 through 50 is full of anachronisms. It is full of things that make absolutely no sense, 2000 B.C. But they make a lot of sense, <laughs> 500 B.C. They make a lot of sense in terms of the exile <coughs> and in terms of the restoration, which for historians raises some really interesting questions. Uh, the narratives, the ancestors, are depicted in ways that are almost prototypical of Israel herself. Uh, the problems and struggles that you'll see with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, with Esau, with the rest, uh, they kind of foreshadow the things. So that uh, when you read these narratives, you're going to get some themes And these themes are then are going to come back in the later history. Um, Just as one through eleven appears to take much older stories from the broader culture and then it takes the Babylonian and the earlier Mesopotamian stories. Reinterprets them in light of the faith of Israel. uh, Many historians say it looks like may or may not be right but it looks like what we're looking at today takes older stories not from the culture but older stories from the faith of Israel. Stories that have been around for centuries, if not millennium. And it reinterprets them in light of later tradition. So what it looks like is going on is that there's some very old, very ancient stories that are then edited to bring them up to date with later times. So they're relevant. Same kind of thing that we would do today. Uh, The setting, which is 1,500 years later, the setting of the and Restoration. It is amazing, and w- we'll look at some of this today. If you read these chapters through the lens of the and the, Ex- uh, the and the Restoration, things just start jumping off the page to you. Why would you be talking about this, 2000 B.C., when that was not an issue, 2000 B.C.? And this, there's multiple instances that we'll look at. This has led many scholars, and if you read the textbooks, this is what you went across. Uh, the stories, at least as we have them today, they appear to actually been finalized during the exile and during the restoration period, and that they were specifically edited then to address issues that are relevant for the returning exile. So that's kind of the big historical picture. And as we roll forward, we'll look at some of that. So certain aspects of the story, which don't seem to make sense in the time of Abraham, make a lot of sense later in the, the time frame. Uh, so today we're going to highlight some of that um, and use the, the emphasis of the contemporary scholarship in the Second Temple period, because it turns out Genesis really is written from the perspective or is edited from the perspective of the Second Temple period, which we'll be looking at a little bit later. Uh, one of the themes that we find in Genesis 12 through 50 is this whole theme of exile and return. Uh, You remember the Jews went into exile where? Babylon, and they came back. Earlier, where did they leave and go into? Egypt and come back. Guess what Abraham does? He comes out of Babylon into the promised land, into Egypt, back out again, and guess what? His children do too. And so several times in the narratives, you you're got you kind of moving back and forth out of Babylon and back and forth out of Egypt. Um, so like Israel's stealth, the ancestors find themselves coming from Babylon, coming out of Egypt. Abraham does that. Jacob does that. And Joseph does that. Isaac does not. But then the interesting thing about Isaac is, Isaac, there's almost no story there. You've got a big story with Jacob, and you got Abraham, you've got a big story with Jacob, And you got a little piece with Isaac. It's an important piece, but it's it's little. In addition, the story of Abraham clearly has anachronistic elements and language. For example, do you remember in Genesis the reference to Ur of the Chaldeans? Do you know what the problem is? Anybody read any history here? There are no Chaldeans. (laughs) There's no Chaldeans for 1,500 years more. Chaldeans is a specific term referring to the Neo-Babylonians starting in 605 B.C. and going into the 500s. So all of a sudden you're going, whoa, what is that about? Why would we be using, using this language, particularly in the time of Abraham? First use 500 B.C., 1,500 years earlier. So the story of Ob- Abraham in its present form appears to be written to parallel and that so that people living much later could relate to this story. Abraham's our father, yeah. Abraham experienced what we experience. God called Abraham to do what God is calling us to do. And so there seems to be some points of connection. Like the family Abraham, the exiles are called to come out from Ur the Chaldees, literally for them, and to go to the land of Canaan. If you're a Jew in exile in Babylon, And Cyrus's decree comes out in 538 BC, and you're going to be with Ezra and Nehemiah, or Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel or some of the others coming back. This is what you've been called to do: leave everything behind in Babylon, pick up roots, take yourself back to Palestine. Now, how many years have they roughly have they been in Babylon? 70, according to Jeremiah. How many of the people you think that are coming back have any memory? of Palestine. Precious few. They have spent three generations in Babylon. So they're being asked to leave everything familiar and go to somewhere they've never seen. Precisely what God asked Abraham to do. So it's very, very striking. They're going to come out of Egypt and also into the promised land, just like Abraham did. So now moving to the story, we began in chapter 12 with God's call to Abraham. Names are everything in Hebrew. Just remember that, anytime you've got a name, you've got a statement being made. So Abram is father, Sarah is princess. Sari, she becomes also means princess. So she's a princess any way you cut out, okay. <laughs> she is the original Jewish princess. Uh, <laughs> where are they from? <laughs> Babylon. Now it gets real interesting because if you look at this, we think Mesopotamia, But Mesopotamia is the entire Tigris-Euphrates area. Where is Ur? Babylonia. So they are specifically called out of Babylon to enter the promised land. Now that's Abraham's father. They get up to Haran. They settle there. They've got family there. And it's at Haran that God then calls Abram to leave there and go to the land I will show you. Uh, he's then going to come down to Palestine, which is where God wants him. But then we're going to have a drought, and Abraham forgets what God wants him to do. And Abraham decides to take himself to where? Because they got food there, you know, and the during the drought is where you want to be. So that's sort of the, the big picture of the narrative. Uh, the Hebrews have an interesting name. The word Hebrew comes from a very ancient word you find in lots of languages in the Middle East. Basically, it's Ibram. And what it literally means is what we would today call Bedouin. They are wanderers. They are nomads. uh, Maybe even use the word gypsies. Remember that creed in Deuteronomy? My father was a wandering Armenian. Okay, it's literally the meaning of the word Hebrew. The Hebrews, if you go back and they're going to be called Jews before that, they're going to be called Israelites. But originally they're called Hebrews. What it literally means is these are people of the desert. These are nomadic tribes kind of wandering around. And that creed is uh, protected. God calls him to leave everything, go to a place that I will show you. Um, And this is another aspect that the story of the the exiles in Babylon would relate to. They have spent generations, as he mentioned, in in exile. Most would have never seen anything. Now, there's a, a couple of passages that say that when they rebuilt the foundations of the second temple, there were a few people who could remember the first temple because they wept at how pathetic the second temple was. Okay. But for most people, they would have never seen this. Uh, like Abraham, they're going to be asked to journey to a place they've never seen. Now, Josephus in his writings makes an interesting little comment about the exile and about these, these people uh, and about how difficult it was for them to leave. You'd think they'd be excited. You know, We've been released. We're exiles. We're going to go home. Not so much, okay? Uh, Josephus says, many remained in Babylon being unwilling to leave their possessions. Now, surely some things you could liquidate and take with you, but would you leave? If you've been in a country for 70 years, if you leave it, are you going to leave some stuff behind? You are, and it'd be very, very difficult things to do. So God promises Abraham, and the promises are striking because you've just read chapter 11, the Tower of Babel story. And the Tower of Babel story and the call of Abraham are two sides of the same thing. Do you remember in the Tower of Babel what the issue was? Why did they build the the tower? They wanted to what? Wanted to reach heaven. And the biblical language is they wanted to make a name for themselves. Do you remember what God's first promise is to Abraham? I will make a name for you. So those stories are very clearly connected together. Um, the whole point of chapter 12 is God will give you as a gift grace. Your name. Uh, and his name will actually be changed because of that it's the exact language of the tower builders. Um, so unlike the nations. Israel's a success. Uh, does not depend on what they can do. It depends on grace. And we begin to get the whole. Theology of grace that comes in. By the way the Old Testament. Is full of grace. We sometimes have heard the Old Testament is, is what. Judgment, New Testament is grace. If you read the the Old Testament, first God delivers them out of Egypt, which is grace. Then God takes them to Sinai and says, here's law and holds them accountable for that. So so grace precedes the whole Bible. Uh, But that this is going to come from God, not from someone else. In the narrative, all Abram has to do is blindly trust God. Okay. Back to chapter 2 and 3. What did God ask Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden? (coughs) Trust me. Everything here is good for you, but there's one tree that will kill you. It will kill you for sure. Trust me on this. Did they? No. So it's almost like with the human race, now we're getting a second chance to do that. Uh, Give up everything you've known. Go to some place that you don't know. Now. Fast forward, if you're reading this in light of the later Israelite history, our Jewish history, this would be a very compelling message for somebody who's being asked to leave Babylon and return to Palestine. And you would see in the story of Abraham your own story. They've been taken in exile because, according to Deuteronomic theology, you did not obey the Lord your God and therefore you were punished. But if you obey the Lord, your God, according to Deuteronomic theology, what happens? Things go well. Very simplistic, but it's there. Because of lack of faith and disobedience, they went into exile. Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, if they're obedient, what will happen? God is going to give you land and prosperity and lots of children, and, and the blessings shall flow. So the exiles are now getting a second chance. Uh, to be faithful, and the second chance to claim the promises that are now going to be outlined in this book. and uh, in, in return, God promises some particular things to, to the nation, to Abraham. And it's kind of interesting what's there and what's not there in chapter 12. First of all, descendants. Do you remember how many? Interesting. As many as the sands that are on the seashore, and as many as the stars that are in the heaven. And how old is Sarah? Yeah, we'll get to her laughing here in a minute. Uh, they're going to be a great nation, uh, and they're going to be a blessing to other nations. Now, just this, this flag this. This has become a, become a major, major theme within part of the tradition of Israel. Not all of it, but with part of it. Surprisingly, among these promises, land is not mentioned. It is implied. If you're going to be a great nation, you need some great real estate, right? <laughs> uh, it's implied, but it's not there. The promises are then repeated in chapter 15. They're repeated again in chapter 17. This time, in these two chapters, the business of land is made explicit. And it's kind of brought to center stage. You know, land is what this is about. Uh, an issue they're still finding over today. Different parts of tradition are going to focus on different aspects of the promise. Now, for the Jewish tradition today, what part of the promise is important? Land. Okay. They're still fighting over that issue. It's the promised land. Who gave it to us? God gave it to us. Okay. Now, that becomes the emphasis of mainline Judaism to this day. Uh, there's another strand of the tradition. We're going to see it in the book of Isaiah, particularly starting, at particularly chapters 66, 56 through 66 the last part of the book and it becomes an important part of Christianity what promise would that be it's not land it's not descendants blessing to the nations that the existence of Israel serves a purpose for God and the existence of Israel is not for itself it is for <coughs> the world God has called Israel into being to be a blessing to the nations um, all right, we're going to take up uh, here in Isaiah here in just a second. Abraham's descendants have a unique relationship with the larger world, which, by the way, all of a sudden brings Genesis 1 through 11 back into focus. Why start the Bible with the larger world? Well, why did God call God's people for the larger world? And we're going to see this, this theme develop. They're going to be a blessing to the nations, Or a member in Isaiah. We, every Christmas we tell the story. They are to be what? The Gospel of John picks this up, a light to the nations, becomes the language of Isaiah, uh, and the New <coughs> Testament picks that up, and again it clarifies why Genesis one through eleven's been added. Um, the story of God's people is not just their story; it is also the story of their relationship to the larger world. And this is an issue that that Israel struggles with. Do we circle the wagons and withdraw? And isolate ourselves and define ourselves as being separate from, other than the world, or we like salt or leaven, the language of Jesus, and our job is to go out into the world and make a difference. Do God's people still struggle with that issue? Yeah. Some churches build all these things. Uh, you got your private swimming pool, you got your bowling alley. You never need go into the world, right? You can do everything you ever want to do. That's, that was a big issue in youth ministry for a while, you know. You know, if we just keep them in church, we can keep the evil influence of the world away from them. Well, that's one approach. The other approach is get. Go out there. Do the kinds of things that we were doing yesterday. Uh, So Abraham does everything. He is renamed an interesting name. From Abram to Abraham. He goes from being father to being father of nations. And again, highlighting that relationship with the nations. It seems to be open to his name. Fast forward to the New Testament. This is stuff that Paul picks up on. He picks up on it in Galatians, and he picks up on it in Romans. Uh, he sees uh, Abraham as the supreme example of the faith that we're supposed to have as Christians. Um, and the faith, he says, particularly well in Galatians is a faith that knocks down walls. It's also in Ephesians. The wall between the Jew and the Gentile, the non jew between Israel and the nations. So through faith, Paul says in in Romans, the Jew and the Gentile together become a larger entity, which Paul calls Israel. That's interesting because in some ways this goes all the way back to the Abraham story and it's part of that that earlier tradition. Paul says we're created new people and all (coughs) new inclusive people. Uh, For Christians, having faith in Christ is what makes us children of Abraham. That's what Paul says in Romans. And for Jews, it is biological. For Muslims, it's also biological, but by whom? Hagar Hagar and Ishmael. Um, And so the three faiths are called the Abrahamic faiths, going back in three different ways. Now, we have a little interesting story there. We got a little side trip in Egypt. There's a famine Abraham goes to Egypt. And by the way, the way the story is told, it's real clear this was not God's intent. Abraham does not trust God to take care of him. So what does he do? He takes care of himself, makes a name for himself. He's going to go where he's careful. How does that work out, by the way? <laughs> not too good. Not if you have a really attractive wife. OK, uh, and then we have that whole story. Uh, then we move on to Hagar and Ishmael. You've got God's promises predicted to uh, and they're all predicated on Abraham having a male child. Doesn't happen. Sarah's not getting younger. Years roll by. Does not happen. Now, you got this promise. So what's the fix? Sarah's got the fix. There's this young thing in the tent. Okay, I'll just give her to, give her to, uh, to Abraham and they'll take care of it. So it's an act of unfaith. She takes matters into her own hands. She wants to make a name for herself or make a name for Abraham. And she gives Hagar over to Abraham. Ishmael is born. And that sets a whole other story in motion. Genesis 17 focuses on circumcision as a sign of the covenant. This is another place where, where historians go, what? There's an issue here. Do Egyptians practice circumcision? Yes, they do. Do Babylonians practice circumcision? (coughs) Yes, they do. Does every culture in this world practice circumcision? Yes, they do. So why would circumcision be an issue? It's not. It's not until some people from the Mediterranean, Alexander and the Greeks, come over and guess what they don't practice. And all of a sudden, it becomes an issue. So this is one of those anachronisms. Some scholars believe and this is probably the majority. This is another uh, post-exilic emphasis because circumcision is an issue the Jews are really, really struggling with later. You remember Antiochus Epiphanes and he tries to eradicate the Jewish faith? What is the first thing he prohibited? The practice of circumcision. All of a sudden, it becomes a big issue because you're fighting over it. Uh, but at this point, it was not. Alexander comes, the Greeks come, it becomes an issue. So scholars looking at that going, in Abraham's time, nobody would have cared. During the exile and restoration, everybody would have cared. So that appears to be So Hagar and Ishmael are then sent away. Then we have this interesting story of the three oaks at Marm. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, have you ever seen those icons called the the Old Testament Trinity? You've got Sarah and Abraham, and you've got three angelic beings. It becomes a very, very famous art uh, god's message is sarah is what Do you remember we're going to repeat the promise you're going to have children she laughs now abraham laughs too by the way but sarah laughs and then isaac is born and what does isaac mean in hebrew laughter so who got the last laugh <laughs> supposed to be humorous i mean that's it's the way the story is narrated out you know uh you're gonna laugh at this okay Name him Isaac. And every time you, you get here, you're, you're another. Another famous story, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the evilness of Sodom. Now, when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, what kinds of issues come to mind? Sin? Let's be more specific. Yeah. Not sexuality. What is the issue in Genesis is the issue of hospitality. And it's real clear on that. Uh, the reason being we got this interesting story where you have uh, angels who visit Lot. Uh, he's in, they're in his house under his roof, under his protection. And you have the, 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 the mob, the crowd, comes that wants to rape them. Everybody thinks that's a homosexuality issue. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. Lot offers the raving crowd his daughters to satisfy their lust. That's nuts, isn't it? From our viewpoint, that is nuts. Let's look at this. There's something going on here. Uh, Later, it's linked to different issues. For example, um, Ezekiel 16 says this. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So now we're going to get an Old Testament prophet who's going to tell us what this story is about. She had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and she did not aid the poor and the needy. What? Is that anywhere in Genesis? Read the story again. That's n- this is this is taking an older story, taking it in a whole different direction, interpreting it. Okay, well now the New Testament does the same thing. Jude seven, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality, pursued here's your term unnatural lust. So this becomes the quintessential story for what, gay bashing, correct? This is one of those great stories. Has nothing to do with sexuality of any shape, form, or form. Fa- f- uh, and the, the, the key here is when Lot offers his daughters. In this culture, if you take someone in your home and they're under your protection, you will give your life rather than let harm befall them. That is your duty. They're under your protection. So for us, a story that, that sounds so bizarre that he would give his daughters to a crowd is just reinforcing what's the one thing Lot is committed to do. In that culture, he cannot let harm befall those who've taken shelter <coughs> in his home. He will do anything. He will give himself. He will give his life. And so a story that for us just sounds really bizarre and in that culture, long, long ago, makes strange, sort of bizarre sense. Abraham bargains with God. If I can just find 50 honest men, well, could you make it 40? How about 10. Five. If I can find one, will you save it? Well, they're toast. Um, wife's Lo, uh, Lot's wife looks back. She becomes a pillar of salt. This is an ideology. You familiar with that term? An ideology is a story which seems to serve the purpose of explaining something as to why something it is. For example, uh, this is the Dead Sea. What do you see there? Pillars of salt. Uh, and by the way, some of them remo- remarkably. Now, whatever is in that time frame is going to be long gone. I mean, it's thousands of years ago. But even today, some of them. So what you have here is a story so that any time you see one of these things, you, you, you remember the story about don't look back. Now, who would the term don't look back be relevant for? Returning the returning exiles, okay? Again, if you're, if, you're, if you're being called by God out of Babylon to return to the promised land, and, and Josephus has already told us this is hard. They're leaving friends. They're leaving probably some family who are not going to come. They're leaving property. they have leaving everything they built for 70 years. Very, very difficult to do. So, this theme is especially relevant for them returning, and they should not look back. We then have the binding or the sacrifice of Isaac. You remember the term the binding of Isaac? This is the Jewish version. The Jews will quite correctly point out to us. Nobody got sacrificed. True? So all that happened to Isaac was what? He was bound and put there. So within Jewish tradition, it's referred to as the binding of Isaac. Within Christian tradition, it's referred to as the sacrifice of like Isaac. What's interesting about this story is we go back to chapter 12 and to chapter 15 and to chapter 17. God made some promises to Abraham and to Sarah. What are all of these promises predicated on? This guy that's bound. Lying on the altar. So what is God? And and, and in many ways, this is a very, very difficult story. But theologically. What is at stake here? If Abraham goes through with this. And sacrifices Isaac. What does he lose? It's not just Isaac he loses all of God's promises. So the real issue here is, Abraham, would you be loyal to me even if there was nothing in it for you? And that, my <coughs> friends, is an interesting question. Do we do what we do because of what we think we can get, or do we do what we do because it's the right thing to do and because that's, that's, that's who we're called to be? And there's a lot going on in that story. God really asked Abraham to sacrifice everything. Again, this is a message that centuries later is going to be especially relevant because once they come back, uh, we'll get to the the, the history of this later, but once they return to the promised land, uh, they start building a temple and they quit, and then two prophets come, Haggai and Zechariah, and Haggai and Zechariah make some interesting promises. Here's what they basically say. If you will rebuild the temple of God and finish the project, God will bless you. A Davidic king will sit in the throne. You'll have lots of children. You'll have the wealth of the nations flow to you and everything will be perfect. Did they finish the project? 520, they finished the project. No, actually 515. Did all those things come? No. They're still occupied by a foreign power they still don't have their independence, they still don't have their freedom things got so the issue here is do we trust god even when god's promises don't seem to be coming true now if that is your existential reality and you read the abraham and isaac story what are you hearing i need to trust god even if nothing's coming back we get isaac and rebecca so we have a Servant meets Rebecca at the well. By the way, this starts something, right? Turns out that the well is the local singles bar, okay? <laughs> you want to meet the right, Mr. Right and Mrs. Right, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the well, okay? Uh, Rebecca and uh, Isaac married. Uh, they're kinsmen. They practice indogami. I had not seen that word before recently. Do you know what that word actually means? You marry only within your clan. Do you remember when Ezra and Nehemiah came back? What did they make all the Israelites do? Put away your foreign wives and your foreign children. You were only to marry. Now, in the period of Abraham, there was no endogami. They married, you know, you're marrying Egyptians, you're marrying all kinds of people and stuff. After the exile, endogami became very, very critical. How do we preserve who we are as God's people when we're in an ocean of people who are different from us? Well, we circle the wagons. And we only marry within, within the clan. And so this is a part of this story. Uh, the promise is now passed to Isaac and Rebekah. Um, and this begins the theme of men meeting their wives. Isaac meets his wife. Actually, he doesn't meet her, but his representative meets her. <laughs> Jacob meets her. Moses meets Zipporah at a well. And of course there is, ooh, you ready for that one? Jesus met the woman at the well. And this is part of that story in the Gospel of John. She's a bridal type figure. And it's, it's interesting, and not, not sexually, but in other kinds of ways, it becomes part of that story. The rest of their story involves the saga of their two dysfunctional children, <laughs> uh, Jacob and Esau, and they're quite a trip. Interesting, the Isaac and Rebecca story seems to be kind of a minor story. There's a lot in front and there's a lot behind. Uh, For example, Abraham gets 13 chapters. Jacob and Esau get 11 chapters. Guess how much uh, Isaac gets? One chapter. And that just raises some interesting questions. Uh, Jacob and Esau, and this is where we're going to end, where you're going to have to read Joseph on your own. But the twins struggle in the womb. Esau is born first. By the way, if you're born first, what do you get? Everything. This is why Jacob is born grabbing his brother's heel, wants to yank him back into the womb, don't get literal on me here, okay? This is, this is metaphor. Wants to yank his brother back into the room. Why? He wants to come out first because he wants those promises. Now, interesting thing about uh, Esau. Uh, Esau, we're not so sure how much he wants it. Many of the names. Esau is Harry. Any of y'all know Bill Power at Perkins? Who was there for many years? He used to tell the story of Harry and grabbing. In Jewish culture, is being Harry a good thing? No. You might call them Neanderthals, okay? <laughs> little, little, little less than the full deck up, up front. Grabby, we don't think that's a particularly good thing. But who does God's promise go to? Goes to the thief who grabs everything in sight. The eldest, Esau, stands to inherit all. Jacob grabs everything, and he's going to do it in the most I- unscrupulous of ways. Uh, he steals the buf- birthright, and he steals the blessing. But there's an interesting thing going on. Remember, remember Cain and Abel? Cain was a farmer. Abel was a. Okay. Both made offerings to God. Which offering did God accept? Yeah, not the farmer. We don't like farmers, okay, no. in the Old Testament. We just don't like. If you're into agriculture, the Old Testament is not for you, okay? Just <laughs> who are the farmers? The Canaanites. Who are the shepherds? The Jews. Canaanites have got the good land down at the bottom. Israelites are up in the hills with the sheep. Uh, and again, that, that, that sort of pops out here. You got a parallel to the Canaan Abel story. Uh, God's going to favor the shepherd over the farmer, the Israelite over the Canaanite, despite his moral character. Jacob is a trickster and a deceiver. By the way, in the ancient world, tricksters were held in high regard. It's interesting. I, that's not a, one of our values. He tricks his brother out of his birthright. His brother is hungry, and he offers him food. But it says something about Esau that he's willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Not a full deck and maybe he doesn't passionately want it. With his mother's help, dysfunctional family, he tricks his father, remember that story? Puts a sheepskin over and his father says, oh, it feels like Esau. That tells you a lot about Esau, okay? (laughs) Uh, There's no old old text that, and and Esau, uh, or was it uh, King James, and Esau was a hairy man, okay. Uh, he replaces Esau he re- unscrupulously steals everything in sight uh, their respective marriages it says a lot that Esau does not practice endogami Esau marries a what? a Hittite well Bathsheba is a Hittite or the wife of a Hittite and she becomes the grandmother of David so it depends on what story you're in Jacob the heir of the promise practices endogami he has to go up to Haran Again, this is a later emphasis. It's not an emphasis early on. Jacob has this interesting dream. Remember Jacob's ladder? Angels ascending and descending. Jacob is the first visionary in the Bible. He won't be the last. But he has dreams. He has visionaries. His son Joseph will be an interpreter of dream. Uh, This is also an etiology. It explains the origin and the significance and the importance of the place called Beth El. Beth is house. El is God, the house of God. This becomes the primary temple of the northern kingdom, uh, and it lasts for a long time. Jacob goes to Haran, and the the story just gets hilarious. Jacob is the trickster, right? He meets his match with his uncle Laban, who out-tricks him, you know. Falls in love with who? Rachel? This remember the whole business of veils and marriage. Bad idea, okay? Really bad idea. Because you can bait and switch. You can slip another one in with the veil. And only after you're married and the veil is raised, Jacob realizes, I've been tricked. Has to work seven more years for Rachel. And poor Leah, what does her name mean in Hebrew? You remember? Unloved. Ouch. That hurts. Seven more years he works. Uh, but Jacob gets the last, uh, the last deal here. We're going to stop with this. He outtricks the Laban. And we get a little magic here. Uh, according to uh, the magic of the, of the era, if you take pieces of popular almond and plane trees and you peel back the bark and expose the wood and you lay it in front of animals as they breed, what happens? All their offspring are black or spotted, but not pure white. Now, from a modern scientific viewpoint, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> But it's, it's the magic of the time. So this is what, in the story, Jacob does. He puts it in front of all the animals, and guess what starts happening? All of the newborns are black, are striped, are spotted. And give it seven years, what have you got? All of Laban's wealth moves over to the Jacob column. And so we've got another thief here. Uh, he grabs everything. We have one more story we're going to end with. Uh, well, two, actually, you got Rachel stealing the household gods. This is a reminder that these are not monotheists, okay? Monotheism is something that we get really after the exile. Uh, she gets in trouble because she steals all the household gods and leaves with Jacob, and her father's really upset about that. We end with this. Jacob wrestles with God, and the Hebrew word for wrestle is interesting. Uh, again, what is, what's Jacob? Jacob is grabby. He's grabbed his birthright, his brother's birthright. He's grabbed his father's blessing. He's grabbed Laban's property. So what's left to grab? Let's grab God. It's exactly what the story is about. There's an angel and he wrestles with God. Remember that story? And he won't let God go until what? God blesses him. OK, and the, 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 the language there is very interesting. He gets the blessing. He's named Israel, which is a very, very again, L means God. But Israel means grabs, strives with, or wrestles with. So here you've got a guy, not the most scrupulous guy on the planet, but what does he passionately care about? He wants that blessing that's come down through the family. (coughs) Esau, not so much. Jacob does. And then he will have 12 children. The 12 children become the 12 tribes, minus two. Levi becomes a priestly line. Uh, Joseph does not get a tribe. He has two children, Manasseh and Joseph. And by the way, the lands of Manasseh and Joseph equal everybody else's lands combined. So he gets the lion's share. So read the rest. They go into Egypt. They come back out. There's a little bit of history there. And uh, our closing hymn is? Would you stand for him?" 467.